Black, Brown, and Bilingue is to be part of creating a world in which Black and Brown identities are affirmed, bilingualism and biculturalism are nurtured, and equity is the driving force behind all that we do. Welcome to another episode of Black, Brown, and Bilingue. I am one of your hosts, Lisa Jacobson. And I'm Maurice McDavid, your other host. We are thrilled to have two incredible people with us today. Um, It's actually a Black, Brown, and Bilingue first. Um, usually when we have people on the show, we, we, we usually have one person, but today we have a dynamic duo. Um, we have Dr. Leo Chavez. Um, Professor Chavez received his PhD uh, from Stanford University and is currently a professor in the Department of Anthropology at the University of California, Irvine. In addition to scores of academic articles, he is the author of Shadowed Lives, Undocumented Immigrants in American Society, Covering Immigration, Uh, Popular Images in the Politics of the Nation, The Latino Threat, Constructing Immigrant Citizens and the Nation, and his most recent book, Anchor Babies and the Challenge of Birthright Citizenship. Dr. Chavez has received numerous awards for his work, in the most recent being the Association of Latina and Latino Anthropologists Distinguished Career Award in fall 2019. And we also have Linda Sanchez. She received her BA and her master's from San Diego State University and is currently a PhD candidate in anthropology at the University of California, Irvine, with a graduate emphasis in Chicano studies. She is a first-generation college student and has deferred action for childhood arrivals, DACA, and her dissertation focuses on undocumented individuals who grew up in the U.S. but were not able to receive DACA. Welcome. Welcome. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you for having us. We are are incredibly glad that you all uh, took the time to be with us today on Black, Brown, and Bilingue. Um, This uh, podcast really kind of started um, as something that that, uh, really started out of of passionate conversations um, during our master's program um, and has become something that that we're really proud to be a part of. Um, And so you all are just a a continuation of of that legacy because we really try to talk about some incredibly important things. Now, both of you are um, um, anthropologists and and I think it would be fitting. Uh, I'll mention my wife was an anthropology sociology major um, and her undergrad. And um, I'm still going to ask this question, not for my sake, you know, but for the for the listeners, in case they don't know, I know, you know, don't, don't get me wrong. What is anthropology <laughs> and, and, and how do you view, um, you know, uh, immigration differently as an anthropologist than perhaps as an economist, historian, sociologist, etc.? Well, which part of that, those multiple questions, what is anthropology first is the study, very simple, of uh, people, study of human beings, both in the 
past and in the present. Um, and uh, you know, so it has multiple parts to it. Uh, archaeologists are typically what people think of when they think of anthropology with, with the hats and the going around digging up things. Uh, and, uh, but it also includes studies of primates, early humans. It's, it uh, includes the study of language. And what um, we do is a study of living people and how they experience the world and how uh, that world shapes the way they, they think about uh, reality, really, and the world. And so we study people in their contemporary living experiences. Yeah, I, I did ask a lot of questions there. So I appreciate you breaking that down. Then the, kind of that, that second part of that follow-up question is, um, how might an anthropologist then view immigration, which is a, a, a topic that we've, we've covered uh, from some different perspectives uh, thus far in, in, in our podcast. But what's that anthropology perspective? Obviously, I'm sure there's not just one, but what, what might it yeah. bring? Right, but there are some some differences and some similarities, the, the way that different disciplines approach what we really call sort of um, a major or grand question, which is, you know, what is the migration experience like? And, it, and that sort of covers different moments in that experience. Why do people migrate to begin with? What maintains migration once they start, even in the face of, say, uh, incredible amount of nativism, uh, anti-immigrant hysteria, even unemployment? You know, why do people continue to migrate someplace? And third, and probably what we do, is what happens after migration? What, what are the effects and implications for people left behind, the people who migrate, and the places people migrate to? Because migration is one of those profound things that, that creates change in all directions. Once, once people start moving for whatever reason, changes take place in the places they leave, changes take place in the places they're going to, and people who move often experience profound, profound sense that the world they left isn't the, the world that necessarily has to be, that now the world has a lot of different uh, opportunities for them and ways of being in the world that they can take advantage of. And so, you know, there's, there's changes going all, all over the place. Now, the way different disciplines approach this, you know, each discipline has to think, what's their comparative advantage to studying something like migration or immigration? And so, you know, typically there are some sort of stereotypical differences. The, the economists look at what they call the rational man, the way an, an individual is, focuses directly on the individual, how an individual will make decisions based upon a cost-benefit analysis. Well, I'm waking up in a little village in, in northern Mexico, and I'm going to wake up today and the cost of me staying here, you know, it's pretty high, but I can get a lot more benefit if I migrate to California and work as a dishwasher. So I'm going to pick up and leave, right? It's a very individualist kind of view of the world based upon very quantitative models of decision-making. Now, sociologists tend to be uh, uh, slightly different than that because they use the word social, not individual, right? Because they're interested in society. Uh, and the difference between the way sociologists and anthropologists tend to approach things has stereotypically or traditionally been one of method. Sociologists have been more quantitative, the use of numbers, and anthropologists have been more qualitative, the use of ethnographic methods, talking to people, uh, interviewing people, participant observation, going someplace and just being with people and seeing what their lives are like. Now, of course, those borders, like all borders in the world, are not steadfast people in anthropology, sociology, particularly there's a lot of sociologists now who do more qualitative ethnographic work, but you know, that, that has been sort of our differences um, 
you know, we tend to be more focused on, on the directly talking to people and their experiences uh, rather than developing uh, models and questionnaires uh, uh, and, and then getting data that we can quantify and, 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 and test. And so that's, that's been one of the big differences, I think. But, you know, in the world today, there's so much overlap always that um, uh, uh, we tend to focus anthropology on families a lot, on kinship and net social networks, right? And so that's been our contribution typically to social theory about immigration. And economists and, and others, have, and sociologists have really picked up on our approach because it says, you know, when someone decides to migrate, say from that little village I just mentioned in Northern Mexico, they don't just say, gee, what's good for me? I think I'm gonna leave. No, it's typically a family decision, mm -hmm. right? And so the parents say, you know, we need some money because we're starving. We need some money to help buy some seeds or buy a cow. Why don't we send this person to the United States to help us get some money? Or this person will go to, to the city and, and work as a maid, for example, to bring home some money. So these tend to be family decisions, not just the individualist approach. And so that's been our, our idea has been individuals live in families and social groups and those are important for understanding movement so yeah yeah for linda my oh, question for you you know um so in your bio uh the, obviously the first thing that stood out to me was that you're the fir first generation college student as am i and i know that that um inherently brought like unique challenges um just because my parents didn't know how to navigate the educational system um, and things of that nature. Um, can you tell me a little bit more about how you got interested in anthropology and from your perspective as a DACA recipient, how does this influence the work that you're currently doing? Oh, that's a very good question. I So the way I came to anthropology and just kind of the way I really found anthropology was just through community college, <laughs> you know, so... Um, and trying to figure out how to navigate that world because, you know, just like you, I my parents didn't go to college. Um, you know, I think my mom got to second grade and my dad got to fourth grade. Um, so it was definitely a, a different experience, but I'm sorry, can you repeat that question really quick? No, that's okay. So how, how did you, um, or do you think that your experience, or can you speak to how your experience as a, like a DACA recipient, first uh, generation college student, how did that um, influence your work that you're doing now in anthropology? Oh, okay. Um, yeah, well, you know what? I One of the things that I, I like about anthropology is that, you know, we really come from this approach of looking at individuals in their everyday lives, you know? And I think that obviously my experiences um, going through college or just going through my life, um, really made me want to study immigration, right? So I got into um, the study of immigration mm -hmm. and then also looking at, I specifically look at the people that couldn't get DACA, right? For whatever reason, maybe they, um, they didn't have enough money to apply. Maybe they grew up in the US, but um, they didn't qualify, right? Like I was, um, had I been like one or two years older, I wouldn't have been able to qualify, wow. right? So. Yeah, so all of those experiences, I think, really kind of, you know, put me on this path to really um, exploring immigration. And um, like I said, I found anthropology in community college, and then I kind of just um, went from there. But I think that a lot of my experiences that I've lived through 
um, has kind of shaped the research that I'm doing now. So for example, one of the things that I'm looking at in my research is um, a lot of people when they applied to DACA, they had to alter their name. They had to usually add their uh, mother's uh, maiden name. Um, because that's the way it shows up in your birth certificate. But if you have DACA, chances are you grew up in the US, right? So you were used to probably just using your father's last name because that's the way it's done in the US. Um, and then when you got DACA, you had to um, have your name as exactly as it appears on your birth certificate. And while this might not sound like a big deal, it actually screwed up a lot of things yeah. for me at least. So I was like, I'm gonna look into this and I've been finding out all kinds of things. Like, you know, people have had issues with their W-2s or like financial aid or all kinds of things. So, you know, that's one way my experience as a Latina, um, you know, first generation person on DACA has, has shaped my, my research. Yeah, I read the article uh, that you wrote oh, about you. yeah how you were forced to uh, revert to a name that you had already left behind, and you also talk a little bit about how this is done to um, make certain communities more traceable. Can you speak to that a little bit more? Um, yeah, that's that's a very good question. Um, you know, it seems like sometimes historically. Um, nation states um, have used last names as a way of tracing people, right? Uh, whether it's um, to mark for things like religion, right? Or all kinds of things. Because really, if you look at human history, the use of last names is actually pretty recent. And when I say pretty recent, it's like, you know, the last few hundred years. So, um, so I think for me, obviously, like, I, I think that um, perhaps this is, you know, if we're adding last names to people, it, it does make you traceable. I'm not saying that, you know, some people kind of saw this as a positive thing because it's like, oh, I'm reclaiming, you know, my mother's last name or things like that. But for me, just the ability for the nation state to change your name, um, I think can be very problematic. I'm just going to say a couple of words about the work, the naming issue, because it's, um, an important point to be made is that people in places like Latin America, particularly Mexico, they use the mother and the father's last name specifically to be able to be more inclusive and follow their family lines along the maternal and the paternal. When they come to the United States like Linda and she grows up here, we're very heavily patriarchal and patrilineal. So we only say the mother really doesn't matter in our system, the father does. And so people adapt to that very patriarchal, patrilineal way of thinking in the world, right? And then suddenly DACA comes in and says, well, now you have to use your birth certificate, right? And so in a sense, it's, it's, kind, of a, it's kind of a contradiction, right? And it's because if, if they could have kept it, using it when they came here and not had to adapt to the US system, they wouldn't have had any trouble, <laughs> right? But they had to go through this adaptation process that created the problem. Yeah, it's it's um and it's not something I, I think that is um, only located right in our modern day immigration conversation. Um, Dr. Chavez, I got a chance to um, uh, I'm sorry, Dr. Chavez. <laughs> listen, I'm I'm a former Spanish teacher. I'm embarrassed, Dr. Chavez. Um, I uh, got a chance to. Um, here you speak, uh, you were speaking at Harvard um, during their 
think it was their, their DACA seminars. Um, and one of the things that, that you kind of um, talked about was how the focus of the immigration conversation was somebody different 100 years ago, but it was still just as negative, right? And so there's almost always been this Latino threat narrative. And so I, I'm wondering, Dr. Chavez, if you could talk a little bit about that and maybe what are some ways in which it has differed um, in our modern day story, right? And, and then um, uh, Linda, if you can follow up, you know, and, and maybe talk a little bit about how you've experienced um, some of that Latino threat narrative um, as it sits in, in, in you know, the 2000s. Sure, I think one of the key uh, sets of ideas that's been part of the American historical tradition, because you know we're a nation of immigrants, and because of that, you know we have, we've had immigration forever, basically, and uh, whether it's been forced or voluntary, and so it's it's been people moving here to the Americas because you know Europe and other places came and they populated this place, and so as a as a, as, a, as a part of that is the reaction to waves of newcomers that have come in. So as one wave comes in and gets established, they begin to see themselves as natives, right? As uh, like Native Americans, indigenous almost, right? And it only takes two weeks in America, in America for people to think they're more native than the next people coming in. <laughs> and so we've had these periods of intense nativism in our history. Um, going back since the beginning, before there was even the United States, to the colonial system, right? And so, you know, when you know people in the colonial period, um, like uh, like Franklin, Ben Franklin, worried about the Germans Germanizing the English, right? And later on, when you had the Chinese and the Irish coming in, the Scots and the English were worried about them because there were a number of reasons. You know, they thought the Irish because most Americans came, they came from Britain thought of Irish as, as basically subhuman. They weren't seen, they didn't use the word genetics, they just felt they were biologically inferior right, to, to English people. And, um, and they, they were basically so mentally uh, dumb, they could never really learn. And they came in the same time as the Chinese, pretty much. And they were almost seen as, as uh, basically equivalents. And so people would talk about the white Chinese and they, you know, the, the Irish are building the railroads from the east, the Chinese from the west. And they thought of them as these manual laborers who were really foreign, uh, the Chinese because of, of racial characteristics, but the Irish because of, of, of the way they were thought of as being basically mentally inferior and Catholic because they weren't Protestant, right? And Catholicism at that time, it's, it's like today we think the major religious difference is, is between Islam and Christianity. In those days, it was Protestantism versus Catholicism. Right. And so it was intense, intense. And then, so that's around 1850 to 1880. And then now comes a whole nother group of people from Southern and Eastern Europe, the Greeks, the Italians, the Czechoslovakians, the Russian Jews, the Lithuanians, right? They're seen as so different because they, you know, they come wearing incredibly poor clothing and very traditional looking folkloric clothing, they not speaking English. And people thought they were incredibly, once again, biologically inferior to the stock. Many were seen at that time as not white. They were seen as, as a swarthy, 
right? White wow. people were from England and Northern Europe. And so there was this racial component where they said they were gonna basically change the face of America, which is another trope we have today, right? And so, you know, they became white later as because race is a non-existent thing really except in the pigment of our imagination. And so it, they become white eventually. And what happens then is that the same sentiments that were expressed during these early periods of nativism are the same ones expressed today. People don't want to be American. They don't want to learn English. They want to take jobs from native, from uh, citizens. Um, in the case of Mexicans, they want to take over the United States, right? They don't want to really be American. Uh, you know, they want to remain apart. And so, you know, that's, that's been a major series of periods of nativist ideas that have come to the present moment. And unfortunately, in the present moment, as in the past, we use all kinds of ideas to express our nativism, one of which is the metaphor of immigrants being a disease on the body of the nation. Right? So the nation's like a body, and immigrants are like parasites or viruses that come to destroy us as a nation. And I think the most recent aspect of that, of course, is the, 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 the anti-Chinese sentiment that Donald Trump basically promoted with the, with the coronavirus, where now we're seeing that kind of nativist violence against Asian Americans. And so, you know, that just didn't start, you know, that, that just didn't start, unfortunately. Um, that's been going on against different groups for the last 200 years. Yeah, you, I think in that same, um, conversation when you were at Harvard, you talked about um, one of the stereotypes being is that we're criminals. And we've seen uh, how the former President Trump really pushed that rhetoric that we're criminals and we're rapists. And by we, I mean Mexicans. Um, but you actually point out in that same conversation that um, immigrant communities are actually safer. Could you speak a little bit more about that? Because I think it's important to to hear your perspective to help dispel some of those myths. Well, yeah, the myth idea that immigrants are criminals uh, is, is one that's easily dispelled. Anybody can get on the internet and look up information on research that's been done on who commits crimes in America, and it tends to be citizens, not immigrants. And you can look at all the research that's been done comparing cities that have high populations of, or large populations of immigrants, uh, and they tend to be safer cities. For all we hear about the border being a, being a, a crime and a criminal area, El Paso is an incredibly safe place compared to other places. And so, you know, this, it's, it's a real myth that the idea that, that immigrants uh, commit crimes at large, in larger proportions than, than uh, American citizens. In fact, if you just think about it, you know, immigrants, why would they be so uh, prevalent to crime more than anyone else, particularly when they're afraid the police are already targeting them, yeah. that they already have, you know, a sign on their back saying, I'm an immigrant, come get right. me, right? So right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go out and commit a crime. So you come out and get me more and, and, and you stigmatize me already and, and, you, and you already fear me and, and all those sort of things. It's sort of like, why would you take on an extra burden by actually committing more crimes? Not that, <laughs> right. no, not that immigrants don't commit crimes. No one's saying that. It's the proportion, mm -hmm. right? The proportion of crimes that you, related to American citizens, that's really different. Yeah, now, now I'm thinking of like a follow-up question for both of you. I don't know, Linda or or um, Leo. Uh, look at me. Let me. That's fine. I, I kind of want to call you Dr. Chavez, but then I feel 
So I'm just like Linda and Dr. Chavez. <laughs> so that's what they call us. That's what they call us here. Okay. So I have a question um, for for both of you. Um, you know, you talk about how historically there have been other groups who have been the recipients of of you know this these stereotypes and um, scapegoating. Do you foresee a time where Latinos will no longer be on that receiving end or what, what, what I mean, I'm, I'm actually really curious, like, it seems like other groups like the Irish and the Germans and the Eastern Europeans have kind of gotten away from that. But Latinos, I don't feel like we're, we're there yet. Well, you know, I, it's, it's really funny that you asked that because I, when I wrote my book, Shadow Lives, back in the 80s, I interviewed a lot of people. And it was a time period when the Central Americans were just starting to come across. And so I interviewed a lot of Central Americans too, right? From, and so they were coming from Honduras, El Salvador, Guatemala, a few Nicaraguans down in San Diego. And I remember I was talking to this, this, this guy, he was, he was about 60 years old. He was himself a green card, a Mexican immigrant. And as I'm interviewing, he starts complaining about these guys from Honduras and El Salvador. I go, well, what's wrong? He goes, oh man, they shouldn't be here. They're, they're taking our jobs. They're, they, they, oh they're, no. They're and he's going, and they're going on and on. I said, he said, you know, they aren't really, and they'll never be an Americans. They're not Americans. So, you know, somebody might call you a foreigner too. And he goes, yeah, but I was here first. And, you know, this is, there has been, I mean, you know, I'm not trying to say that's good or that bad, that's bad, but there's been a long period of, of anti non-Mexican sentiment among Chicanos and others in the United States. Um, that's why, you know, UCLA has the Chicano Studies Center, right? And it's the Chicano Studies Group, um, uh, uh, program. And it's, it's, it's been really hard because, you know, we, off, we have been here so long and we do feel like, you know, if there's natives here, it's us and Native Americans. And, and so accepting people from Ecuador or, 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 or Colombia or, or other places in Latin America and say they're the same as Chicanos is, is really, has been really different. And I see that as a form of, of nativism, to tell you the truth. That's a form of, of of, of resistance to diversity. And, and um, you know, places are still having conversations. What should we call our department? Should we call it Latino and Latina studies? Should we call it Latinx studies? Should we keep it Mexican-American or Chicano studies? I mean, so, you know, no one's immune from those kind of sentiments, right? From those kind of, of, of feeling you and the people who are closer to you and look like you and talk like you and feel like you are somehow better. No one's no one's immune to that. It's almost a natural kind of thing, right? And um, and and you know, people bring that. One of my students, she's uh, her parents are Zapotec uh, from from Oaxaca, and and she has an article. She she's now a professor at UCSB, UC UC Santa Barbara. And she has an article, and the title is "You you you're um, short, dark, and ugly. You must be you must be Oaxacan." Mm. Because Ooh, you know, you're going because, deep. Wait, this is. This is man, you are airing out all our dirty laundry today. <laughs> you ask me, you ask me a question if we're if we're ever going to be accepted, I and I think it. we need to, we need to accept ourselves too. Preach, yeah. We need to accept yeah. ourselves in our own diversity before we can help force people to accept us too. I mean, only in, Latin, in Mexico right now is only learning the fact that there are Afro Mexicans. Yeah. When I tell students who grew up in Mexico that the first or second president of the Republic of Mexico was Afro-Mexican, they, they, they never heard that in schools in Mexico. When I tell people that Pio Pico was Afro-Mexican, 44% of the people coming to California and Texas were Afro-Mexican. People just, they, you know, we, they want to talk about Latinos and African-Americans being these two historical moments. 
but they're closer than that. And so, yeah, I think, I think we have to, you know, work on ourselves and then demand that people accept us in our diversity. And I think for a long time, Mexico kind of neglected this history, right? This like Afro-Mexican history um, in Mexico. So it, it's really kind of sad, but, you know, to add to what Leo was saying, I, I'm kind of afraid that no matter what, there's always going to be some group targeted, but I really do hope that in my lifetime, I get to see a time when that is not the case, you know, where we can all get along and maybe I'm just being too optimistic, but I think, I think it's possible. I, I, think, I'll say, I, I hope to see a time where it's not us. The issue is, the issue is that populism among politicians in, in many places in the world, Europe, Europe and the United States, but not only those places, even in some other places, populism's appeal is, is to the fears and resentments of people who feel others are taking advantage of them, that are coming in to take away what they earned and what they deserve. And Donald Trump is a classic example of that. So you know, even when after generations and generations of fighting for this country, bleeding for this country, dying for this country, producing the wealth of this country, then to have a populist come in and point the finger at you as, as somehow destroying this country, all that goodwill is gone, right? And so that's the problem. It's, it's, it's not that people can work to become accepted. It's, it's the ability to be targeted and scapegoated by populist politicians and the media who support them, unfortunately, oh, at any particular time. So, so, so I'm, 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 I'm sitting here and I'm, I'm thinking as, as I was listening to, to you both, um, I, I thought a lot about um, we've spent some time talking about um, building unity. One of our goals of the black of, of our podcast, Black, Brown, and Bilingues, is to build a sense of unity between the black and brown communities. Um, one of the things I loved doing was Black History Month while I was this middle school Spanish teacher, right? Because we're going to talk about Afro-Latinos, and we're going to talk about the fact that that regardless of what everybody else may say. Um, there is this connection, right, between um, uh, our communities. However, I also it, it also made me think about when when you said that ability to to come in and point the finger, scapegoat. Um, it, it made me think about the idea that one of the benefits that Irish and German immigrants or Italian immigrants had over Black people throughout history and over many Latinos throughout history is appearance, right? And so I, I, I wonder, right, when, when the media shows this image of this Black person who has robbed a store, or when the media shows this image of this Mexican man who has committed this crime against a woman, what, what role does, I wonder, does colorism, right, play in, in, in perhaps it making it more difficult for the black and brown community to escape that finger pointing? The problem I think there is, which you're putting your finger on, is the extent to which colorism or the uh, characteristics that are easily observable have have historically played a part in the construction of the criminal. 
or the construction of, of the aberrant or the pathological. And, and so it's hard to erase that. Um, you know, when, when criminology was being developed back in the late 1890s and early 20th century, and you, if you look at the rogues gallery and the features that were expressed on what the, cause they were really into fa reading faces at the time, what the face of the criminal looked like, it was almost all Southern and Eastern European. Now they've, you know, now it's, they've gotten away from that. And, but the problem is they, this whole idea of what does a criminal look like? Mm -hmm. and, and now think about race, uh, facial, uh, this whole idea of facial recognition technology that they're using to say, use in, in crowds at the airports or, or at other places where they can you know, use technology to say, oh, I'm looking at that face and that face is somebody I have to be suspicious of and fear. Well, what are those faces? Right, right. They're not Swedish faces. They're not Swiss faces like my neighbors, right? They're gonna be people that are stereotyped because stereotypes are built into the thinking that the taking for granted assumptions of who you need to fear are gonna be put into that stupid machine into that, 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 uh, uh, that computer. And that's what you're gonna see. And so it's gonna get, the problem is you point out, it's gonna get, keeps getting reinforced, reinforced as technology is supposed to save us, mm. right? From the criminal. It's, it's basically, it's making everybody who supposedly looks like a criminal come be targeted. And, and I think that's, you know, that's with my fear is that this, this technology we're developing is going to be based upon old stereotypes that are hard to erase. And they're going to use the term you use, colorism, which is basically a perception of fear based upon this, this set of assumptions that people who look like this, I have to be afraid of, right? And it's just, it's, it's almost as if, you know, it doesn't matter what they're wearing. They could have a, a three-piece suit on and, and, and have a wallet that's stuffed full of, 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 of um, American Express gold cards but that's the face that's going to give them away because our bodies project signs. And if the system is built around a set of signs that are already taken for granted as being scary, it's going to be hard to, for the, your body, no matter what you do to get rid of those, to have those signs erased, I think personally, but we, that doesn't mean we can't criticize this new technology. We can't work on it, point out the obvious contradictions of what they're doing. And, um, you know, PBS had a great documentary on last night um, on facial recognition, actually, which I knew about for a long time because I had to teach about it. And, uh, and it's just basically just exactly on this, how this new facial, racial, facial technology is a racial technology, <laughs> right? And so I, I basically agree with you. It's, it's harder and harder, I think, to, to overcome that. Yeah. Do you want to... Um... Jump in. I, I see you unmuted yourself. What are your thoughts on that? Oh no, I, I um, I mean, I don't want to add too much, but yeah, just I think that's one of the reasons, you know, that uh, communities of color are so over policed, you know, or if you're if you look a certain color, they will target you. Um, just a few weeks ago, my dad loves to walk around. This is in the city of Orange, and he was just walking around, minding his own business, and this lady comes out and yells at him, and she says you dirty Mexican, why don't you go back to TJ? Wow. wow. And it's, you know, because of the way he looks. Mm. So I think, unfortunately, it, it does have a huge role. Yeah, yeah. But that's, well, I was kind of getting at the, the hard part of that is, I mean, a few years ago, you might have had some instances, instances, instances of that, 
But now it's almost as if because of Donald Trump's rhetoric, there's a green light for some people to think, wow, it's okay for me to do that because the president has already given me the rhetorical okay, right? And so I write about, I study rhetoric, I write about rhetoric. You know, rhetoric is important. It's not just meaningless words that don't hurt, right? No, rhetoric can actually create the basis for action, like what happened to her father. And, and so, you know, that person just didn't come up out of the blue and say, gee, there's a Mexican guy walking out there. I think I'm going to go, you know, be racist to him. They already, they're hearing this. Right. Right. They're and they're feeling, this. they're feeling emboldened and they're feeling like exactly. oh, I have, I have permission. Exactly. Um, you know, you also, we, Maurice and I talked about how the media perpetuates um, a lot of these stereotypes and, you know, how the news covers both the black and brown communities really do not help uh, us escape that scapegoating that we've been talking about. But you also make the argument that um, this idea of referring to Mexican immigration as an invasion has been perpetuated by academia. Could you elaborate on that? I, it's been a trope going back for you know, 50 years. Um, the idea that somehow the United States is under siege by Mexicans and they're under siege, not just by migration, but by fertility. The fact that they claim that Latina, particularly Mexican origin women's uh, fertility is out of control. And, you know, and this idea of controlling fertility goes back to the 1960s uh, when people were talking, writing about the population bomb, Paul Ehrlich up at Stanford. And you know, their worry at the time wasn't that more Europeans were having too many babies, that more people, non-Europeans were having too many babies. And it's just continued during that, during that whole time. And one of the groups they focused on were Mexican women, right? That they somehow were like cockroaches who just can't stop their, their fertility because they were tied to uh, supposedly Catholic doc doctrine or, or cultural doctrine that said they, they needed to have as many babies as possible. And they're no, no good for nothing um, partners who just stoned and drunk all the time had to father as many babies as possible. And that trope has just been a continuous trope for decades. And so uh, you see it going back to the 1970s and 80s, the word invasion associated on the cover of Newsweek and the cover of US News and World Report. Other places saying, you know, Mexico invading the United States, it will never stop. And so when Trump gets to office, he didn't have to invent the, that idea of an invasion. He just used it to, to beef up his, to, to spur his, his base on, right? He didn't make any of this. Nothing Trump really said has been made up. It all comes from a, a history of this kind of idea already being there. So the idea that somehow Mexicans are invading the United States and taking it over is, is something that's been continually in the minds of people who are anti-immigrant. And you, and you hear it all the time. Um, more recently, you hear it with, with this idea that and how it gets some of its negative consequences uh, in relationship to Latina fertility uh, was that that comes out of the, this idea back in the early 1920s that we had to control fertility by uh, making it impossible for women to have babies through operations, right? And this was something that was done to women and done to uh, basically Im immigrant women who couldn't read the papers they were signing because they weren't in English, they were in English and wound up having uh, forced hysterectomies. And they try to have a baby two or three years later and boom, what happens on the border? Just what was it last year when they start giving all these women these operations that took away their ability to have a baby, right? So yeah, it, there's, it's not just an idea 
that says they're invading and, and they're, you know, they have too many babies, it has some really very real consequences for women's health. So um, again, I'm, I, first off, thank you all so much um, for, for just great conversation thus far. Linda, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting here and I'm thinking about the conversation we've had so far. And then I say, okay, well, with all of this negative stuff, why would people still want to come here? Right. And so, and so you uh, are a DACA recipient yourself. You're doing research in DACA uh, on DACA. Can you talk a little bit about what is it that still brings people here to the United States despite this negative talk about um, uh, about the Mexican community, despite this negative these negative ideas about Mexican women? What is it that that still says? Okay, I, I'm I'm going to come, um, and perhaps you know you can speak to that from either your family perspective or also um, uh, from some of the research that you've done. Yeah, um, well, you know, I guess I mean I I can't really say in my own experience, you know, because my parents brought me at five years old, <laughs> so I, I didn't really make a conscious decision to come to the U.S. But I mean, it, it with my family, it was just um, like economic need. Right. And, and you still see that. I, I think that, you know, a lot of people that I'm talking to in my research, it's like their families didn't want to leave. You know, they don't want to leave their home. They don't want to leave their families. They don't want to come to a country that they don't speak the language. Right. Um, but a lot of the times it's things like war. Right. It's violence. It's persecution. Um, it's just like trying to give their children a better life. Right. There's all these things or or uh, family reunification. Right. So like your, you know, your brothers and sisters might be here already. Um, so I think that really kind of um, pushes people to go. Uh, obviously, you know, maybe um, jobs. Right. Because as, as, as bad as things might be here <laughs> uh, when there is an economic recession, like they can be a lot worse in, in other countries. Right. So I think that's that classic immigrant story of like trying to look for a better life for you and, and your family. I think that's still very much part of what's driving immigration to the US, but not just to the US, right? To many other countries. Um, so yeah, I hope that answers your question. <laughs> I, just, I just kind of want to add too, I think, um, you know, the, all the reasons people come here, as, as Linda said, are, are very clear in terms of need, um, whether it's economic or need just for safety. But also, too, I think people come here because, you know, they're constantly fed, to tell you the truth, by the media, uh, the movies, the TV shows that we export to the world, that America is just this place that's, that's really wonderful. And you can come here and, and, and uh, you know, live in Malibu right? and, and, and do all these wonderful things. Um, and at the same time, you know, we export a lot of negativity, too. I, I've interviewed people who have negative attitudes towards diversity in America that of people they've never met. And I'll say, well, where'd you get those ideas? They go, well, I saw it in the movies. I mean, they're criminals, right? And so, you know, this, but when people come here, you ask me, you know, why do they come? Because, you know, it's part of it's this dream or this anticipation of a better future. And, but when they get here too, I mean, at least in California, they come to a place that has a long history of Latinos here. I mean, we've been here since early 1700s. My family's been in New Mexico since the early 1600s. And so, you know, it's three or 400 years of people here. And also it's a dynamic place. 
it's a dynamic place because of the contribution of immigrants and their children and their families and the diversity we have. And so they come here. It's not all dreary and turmoil and everybody shouting at you. There's, there's people who you get along with, you have friends with, you, 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 know, you go out to eat with, you go to have some drinks with. And, and, and it's it, it, not only are places where immigrants and their families go to have less crime, they're the most creative places in the country. And so people come and they enjoy themselves. They enjoy what's going on. They, they learn to eat food that's different from the food they grew up eating every single day. It doesn't mean they want to give up Mexican food or give up Salvadoran food, but suddenly they find up eating Thai food or eating, eating Cambodian food, right? Eating um, hot dogs and pizza from Costco. I mean, they're, they're eating all this stuff, right? That, that, so their world opens up. Yeah. Their world opens up. Now there's negative, there's negativity, but most people in the world don't wake up every morning and think about the negative things that are framing their lives. They think, how am I going to have a good time today and make my life a little bit better and just kind of go with the flow. I think that's why people continue to come and because they have family here who tell them, you know, it's, whatever you hear, it's, you hear all that crap, but it's not as bad when you're living every single day with your family and your friends. And so I think that's what keeps people hoping for a better future. And you know, Linda, you made two points that I think are really important to point out. Uh, number one, you know, if they are escaping certain conditions, it has to be pretty bad if they're willing to leave their neighbors, their friends, their families behind, right? So it's not, um, it's not always an easy decision. And I think another good point that you make is that, like, for instance, you, you were five years old, your parents, made that decision. And I think that is one of the, what was one of the most compelling arguments in support of DACA is that so many of the, the people here um, came against their will. They had no say in, in being brought here as, as young, um, young children. What has your experience uh, been like at the university level with other DACA recipients? And um, what, what do you hope for the future of DACA? Obviously it's continuation, but you know, if you could speak to that. Well, you know, I think I've been very fortunate um, in my own experience. I think for like, you know, every negative thing, there's been like 10 positive things. I got my bachelor's and my master's before there was any DACA. So um, I couldn't get financial aid. I couldn't get student loans. I, I would literally take semesters off and then just work right, to be able to afford wow. my tuition. Um, so once DACA came through, it was like, I was so happy, right? And and after, so after I got my master's, I taught community college in San Diego, and then I decided, okay, I'm gonna apply to PhD programs because um, it's something I've always wanted to do. And it, it was, all these doors opened up, right? It was like, oh, okay, I was finally able to get funding. And like, oh, I have health insurance. <laughs> wow. Um, and so oh. I, I, I really, you know, even though maybe it wasn't that great at the beginning, but even then, right? Like I, I still had the opportunity because so many people before me, uh, people in the community, immigration rights activists, really pushed for things like AB 540, where you could pay for, um, in-state tuition, right, if even if you were undocumented, um, and that came through in like 2001, the year I graduated high school, so had I graduated before that, I probably wouldn't have even been able to afford community college, because I would have had to have pay out-of-state pay out tuition, 
So, um, you know, I really like, I really feel like I'm living the dream doing my PhD because it's something that I've always wanted to do. Obviously it's a PhD. So, you know, it is a lot of work too, but I, you know, I tell, um, I've talked to Leo's classes before and I always tell them like, yeah, PhD is a lot of work, but, but it's probably way less work than trying to do a, you know, a bachelor's and a master's before DACA. So, wow. Um, yeah. Wow. So, I mean, now I feel like I have it easy. Right. Um, but yeah, as far as, as what I hope for DACA, I really hope there, there's some sort of pathway to citizenship, you know, because I think for, for um, a lot of the DACA people, we've been waiting for a long time, right? And, and some of us, um, like for, for me, um, I have, um, like I'm waiting, right? Like I've been like, quote unquote, waiting in line, but our immigration system takes so long. Like I'm still waiting for my number to come up. So uh, yeah, we'll see what happens. You know, I, I'll, I'll keep- For the listeners who don't understand this, Linda, because I, I literally cringe when I hear people say, oh, well, if these immigrants just waited in line like everybody else, it's much more complicated than that. Um, can you speak a little bit on how long has this process been for you? Yeah. And, and what that process even entails, because there's only a certain amount of like um, these, I don't know what it is that are uh, given to each country. And if it, if you don't have a specialized skill, you're not even going to be like invited or am I right? Right. In that. Yeah, kind of. So there's, so for, you know, I can, I guess I can just speak to my experience, but yeah, there's different ways you can, you can get, you know, a number to get legal residency and it takes a long time. Usually um, it could be skill. It could be family member for my family. It was my dad's brother. So uh, we applied um, through my dad's brother. So my uncle, um, I was uh, I was a child. <laughs> this was back in 94. Um, we came in 89. We applied in 94. Um, by the time they got to us, I was already over 18. Yep. Right. So so when they got to us, I didn't get anything like my family was fine but because I was a child who was I'm the oldest. Um, I didn't get anything. So my dad reapplied for me again. And so my basically my waiting time started all over again when my dad applied for me again. So here I am still waiting. And our, our first application that was put in like as a family was put in in uh, 1994. So I've basically been in line since 1994 Yeah, <laughs> and I'm still oh. waiting. And, and, you know, for a lot of people, there is no line to get into. Exactly. So it's like this made up kind of thing. And, you know, it's not like the, the green cards are not, it's not a finite resource like gold. You, they can literally print these out. Right. Mm -hmm. So I think something needs to be done and, and hopefully, you know, there's change soon. Mm -hmm. yeah 1994 yeah and and so you you said your family came in 89 mm -hmm. so you really barely missed the Reagan amnesty am I correct yes that's right oh that's so sad like you just missed that um because that's how my parents were okay. able to um become legal residents was through the through the Reagan um amnesty so yeah 1994 Maurice can you imagine how old were you Maurice in 1994 I was I was uh, the ripe old age of six years old watching the Lion King because it just came out you know <laughs> so so um 
and 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 I I'm I'm aware of the clock and and I want to just just be aware of that um, as we're going to wrap things up here soon. But but man, I'm thinking. Uh, uh, and Dr. Chavez, you mentioned that uh, again, and, and um, one of your speaking engagements, and I'm sure you mentioned a couple of times, but you talk about how how um, Reagan and Bush, um, Bush won. Uh, Bush Senior had some very yeah ha had some very different rhetoric than does our, our current Republican platform, and so I guess I just. I, you know, I don't, I, I don't know. Maybe it goes back, back to that populism. Maybe it goes back to, um, you know, uh, looking for somebody um, to, to, to point a finger to. I remember, I, I often reflect on 2001 and how all of a sudden it seemed like for a moment there was going to be an anti-Muslim turn, right? And I shouldn't say there was going to be, there was one. But I remember thinking as a young black man, like, oh man, Okay, does this mean that, that black people's turn is we're out of the limelight? We're we're gonna be scot-free. And no, no, Trayvon Martin answered that question for us, unfortunately. And we were kind of reminded, um, but but now it seems like there's just been enough of this this negativity for for everybody, right? And and so I'm I guess just doing some reflecting right now. And just add that. You know, you're right. Um, Bush the first and Ronald Reagan, 1980, when they both ran for president, were asked the question: Should the children of undocumented immigrants pay out-of-state tuition, which was what Linda was talking about, which would effectively close the door to education for them for higher education? And you know, Bush the first said he doesn't think they should do that. People should, if they're good, they're good, they're honest people. They should be allowed to get an education. And then Ronald Reagan topped it off even higher and said, yeah, that we should tear the border down. There should be no border between Mexico and the United States. What's all this problem? And, uh, and so they were incredibly different than what's going on today. And when did it change? You know, well, after 1980, we started getting a lot more immigration. And so the response to the, and this immigration wasn't from Europe. European immigration went down. It was more from at Latin America, Asia, and some from Africa. And so it was a more of a, uh, uh, a non-European migration, right? Which kind of set people a little bit off, I think. And also the demographic changes in America were happening so that Native Americans, particularly white women, were getting older and not having very many babies. And demographic change can change really quickly under those circumstances. When one group is older and not having children, and the next group are coming in are younger and the and a ch childbearing age, it's that kind of thing happens very quick. But another thing no one ever thinks about that's been happening since 1960s to today is increasing economic inequality in America. And so the people in the 1960s and 70s who felt they were doing really good, right? They could be open arms to people. They had union jobs. They were getting paid pretty well to build cars, to do other things. Suddenly, and so if you look at a graph that has income inequality and look, and another graph that has how much money are the people at the top fifth quintile of America income earning, they were pretty close about 1960s. But as the next decades go by, the inequality 
has grown and grown and grown and grown. So everybody below the top fifth of America is making less and less and less compared to the top. And people kind of get upset. They start thinking, well, my kids aren't going to have a life like I had. My kids are going to have a worse life. How can they compete? Who's going to get ahead? Who, who can we blame? Well, you know, if you're putting these politicians into office who are creating this inequality, they're not to blame, right? Even though under, mm. under President Trump, that inequality was already so expanded, it even got worse. But he's blaming other people. That's where scapegoat, scapegoatism comes in. People know they're suffering, that things aren't right, that somehow they're getting the short end of the stick. But you're not going to blame Donald Trump for that. You're going to blame the people he's blaming. And so you had a, this confluence of things happening over the last 50 years, I think, right? That's, that's led to all kinds of, of problems for America. And you know, if we can get rid of and reduce income inequality, looking for scapegoats to blame for your circumstances will become much less important. There you go, Maurice. Instead of uh, trying to figure out like, why is there this black and brown divide? We need to tackle this income inequality, right? Because then we won't be blaming each other. Um, and what you talked about with Reagan and how he said, open the borders. Now I understand when he died, my mother was sitting in the living room and she's not a very political person. But she was sitting in the living room crying with a little tissue and I'm like, mom, what's wrong? And she's like, I, pobrecito Reagan. <laughs> and, and, and there's this love and like appreciation from so many Latinos for Reagan. Um, and, and, you know, growing up, I, I had learned about Reaganomics and how terrible that, that was. Um, so, but now that you say that, now I understand why she has such. He signed in the, the last amnesty we had. Yeah. And, and it, was a, it was a Democrat in 1996, who, who signed in one of the worst immigration laws we've ever had, the 1996 immigration law signed by Bill Clinton. Mm -hmm. So, you know, these, these divides, are sometimes you have to remember who's, it's not all Republican and Democrat sometimes, although it has been increasingly Republican anti-immigrant for the last few decades. So interesting because there were no black people crying over Reagan. <laughs> and, and, right. and what I would say though is that again, you can maybe you can see then, right? Because if we allow, if we talk about competition for jobs and increased income inequality, then amnesty for for Mexican Americans or other immigrant populations means more competition for these jobs, right? And then Bill Clinton right, who sometimes is called the first black president. I don't call him that personally, okay? Um, but because of that, right, maybe that immigration bill, which is bad for immigrants, but maybe by black people is seen as something positive. And so, again, I, I think there's something to be said about tackling the income inequality. But again, I, I mentioned the clock, and I'm going to come back to it, folks, because I want you all to be able to enjoy the rest of your evening. Um, we have a tradition here. Uh, and, and it is um, one that we'll stick to tonight. We like to ask our guests to share with us if there was just one thing that you really want the listeners to walk away with. Um, can you share that? Just one thing you want the listeners to walk away with um, when, when, if nothing else, they'll get this uh, because they've made it to the end of our podcast. 
in relation to the topic of the day or just in general? Just in general. Oh, I guess I guess for me, I think uh, Americans I, who I think probably would agree with me is that um, there's nothing to fear but fear itself. Don't be afraid of the kind of differences that some people in our country are trying to make you afraid of. Enjoy life. Get to know other people. Wow. <laughs> and mine, I think, would be kind to other people. You know, I think that it is true what they say, that we are more alike than we are different. So just get to know other people, you know, like Leo said, and you'll find out that, wow, you know, these were people that I thought were so different than me were actually the same. We have the same dances or same something, you know. So, yeah, we're, we're more alike than different. Beautiful. And for Black, Brown, and Bilingua, I'm Lisette Jacobson. And I'm Maurice McDavid. Muchas gracias for tuning in. Adios. Mm -hmm.